It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us uh, from Jerusalem, France 24 correspondent Iris Mockler. How, how are you doing this Friday? Hanging in here, Francois, <laughs> the best I can say. <laughs> uh, in Ramallah, Francesca Bori, journalist at La Repubblica. Are you hanging in there? Um, well, in the veins of the world. I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks as well to Eric Randolph, former Iran correspondent for the French news agency AFP. How have you been, sir? I've been okay, yeah, yeah. Life is a little easier. You've been requisitioned. You were on the culture desk and now you're having to yes, go we're back getting, to this story. Yes, we're all getting pulled into the effort. I think a lot of people need a bit of a, a break after the last few weeks, mm. so helping out where we can. Robert Parsons is France 24's Chief International Affairs Editor. How, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I, yeah, my sympathies go out to Iris. You know, I, doing that day in, day out, I don't know how she does it. You heard that, Iris? <laughs> but, by the Thanks, way, Rob. you don't have to watch the world this week. You can also listen to it, like it, and subscribe it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. Uh, one month after the massacre of some 1,400 civilians in Israel, it's Palestinians bearing the brunt of the response. Uh, more than 11,000 killed and displaced, according to local authorities. Uh, tens of thousands have uh, had to, to uh, be, have just this past week been moving from uh, north to south with those white flags. Uh, an estimated one-third of the buildings in the north of the Gaza Strip are damaged or, or destroyed. Uh, and we were speculating in Thursday's show, Iris Malker, the panel was, over whether the needle is finally moving towards uh, what could be some kind uh, of a real respite? Uh, you know, if there's a hostage deal, I think that will be part of the negotiation and part of the conditions or the terms. Some kind of two, three, five-day ceasefire, um, I think, would be part of any hostage deal. But we've been looking at one, believing there'll be one for on and off for two weeks. Yesterday, there was a big flurry of news. And once again, it hasn't happened. I'd say absent that at the moment, there won't be a ceasefire until there's real international pressure on Israel for one. Um, so it's either a hostage deal or international pressure, whichever comes first. Yeah, and uh, over in the West Bank, where you are, Francesca Bori, on Thursday, it was uh, the deadliest raid by Israeli forces. That was over in Jenin. Uh, is there the feeling that there's any light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, no, not for now. And I would say also that yesterday, what happened in Jenin, I've been in Jenin most of the last year and covering this kind of third intifada. Uh, what happened yesterday is not yet the beginning of the battle uh, in the West Bank. Uh, the West Bank, uh, despite you know, these uh, casualties, uh, is still not you know, the, the second front of the war. Uh, it will become, uh, but probably it will be the settlers' action. It will be a settlers' decision to basically... Uh, turn the West Bank into the Second Front. You're saying it's the West, it's the settlers mm. who decide. Absolutely, they are out of control, and what we have been, you know, uh, for for you know, uh, uh, for us, I mean, international media all started on October seven, um, October six, October five, October four, you know, and we can go back. 
the level of violence, you know, in the West Bank uh, was unprecedented. I've been here around for the last 15 years, one five. I arrived in 2007, and I've never seen, you know, what's happening now. Uh, not only in Hebron, you know, in the south, which is the typical area of settlers, but around Nablus uh, and in all, you know, across the West Bank. And the settlers don't listen to anyone. I mean, they don't listen. The, the, the problem, you know, for settlers is whoever has a different idea of Israel. So they are not only against, you know, all Palestinians or all Arabs, but all, I would say, the, against the differently Jewish and Robert Parsons, we had a report earlier this week, you can find it on our website, uh, by our team, read by Catherine Norris-Trent, uh, and they were speaking with some of those Palestinians who've been expelled from their land just in the past month. Yeah, but as we were just hearing, this has been going on for a long time now. Uh, the attacks in Janine have been particularly bad over the last year, the worst since... Uh, I think the last 15, 15 years or so. Uh, but just go back to the, your point you're making in, when you were talking to Iris just now about the possibility of a ceasefire. You know, it's going to come. A ceasefire will come eventually. Uh, and you can see it already beginning to, to, to develop and the pressure that the United States is putting on Israel. The United States has invested massive political capital in supporting Israel over the war in Gaza. And it will, at some stage, expect returns. It already expects returns. And we see that in the, in the, the humanitarian pauses that we're getting at the moment. But the political pressure domestically is ensuring that uh, Joe Biden has to make sure that Israel starts to toe the line. It's unacceptable uh, to, the, to see this level, level of casualty day by day. Uh, internationally, it plays out Horrifically, even in the United States, you know, it's beginning to affect the polls. So at some point soon, you know, the, the, I think the United States is going to say to Israel, "Enough is enough." And presumably, the Israelis are very conscious of that themselves. You know, we heard uh, mm -hmm. uh, former Prime Minister uh, Barak talking about the fact that Israel probably had, at, at the most, weeks. Two before, to three weeks is what he said. Two to three weeks is what he said. Yeah, mm -hmm. before they have to say enough. And we're seeing it here in Europe. Uh, the diplomatic messaging has changed since October 7th. On Thursday, when he hosted a humanitarian conference for Gaza and Paris, France's president came the closest he's come so far to calling for an immediate ceasefire. Today, the situation is extremely serious and it's getting worse every day. We have to work on protecting civilians immediately, and for that, we need a very quick humanitarian pause and we have to work towards a ceasefire. So, Eric Randolph, the road to a ceasefire, he's not saying immediate ceasefire the way, say, the Spanish or the Irish are doing. Uh, Macron, as always, likes to position himself as the man who's going to make the big deal to be the big player on the global stage. And I think uh, up until this point, he's really wanted to keep his lines to Israel and uh, the Palestinian cause uh, as equal as possible and to make sure that he keeps that that influence um, with Israel. Uh, and I think that's why he's kind of stepped back from going too far. I think he realizes that public opinion in France is shifting so strongly against um, what's happening in Gaza right now that he's really hasn't got a choice but to call for this and now he sees himself as perhaps the person who can push some kind of peace deal, some kind of ceasefire and that that will be his form of influence. But I think he's being led a lot by what's happening domestically within France rather than on the 
within Israel and Palestine. And we're going to get back to that domestic situation a, a little bit later on because it is touchy in this country. Uh, Robert Parsons uh, talking about the pressure being born to bear. Now, we've heard Israel's president beginning to talk about what Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, wants, which is uh, to uh, some kind of real, real thought about what he calls the day after, what happens uh, in the long run. Uh, but from his Sunday interview with U.S. Network ABC to Thursday's on Fox News, Benjamin Netanyahu's message went from, you might say, vague to confusing. <laughs> I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. We don't seek to conquer Gaza. We don't seek to occupy Gaza. And we don't seek to govern Gaza. Iris Makhla, will the real Benjamin Netanyahu please stand up? Uh, yes, and, and you know, it's it's quite interesting that these discussions are being had in English, or at least not even discussions, these interviews are being held in English on the American networks and not in Hebrew with people in his own country. He's a prime minister, I don't need to remind you, in a very precarious position. Uh, and here he is pronouncing what's going to be and changing his mind every five minutes, I think, depending which um, interviewer he's speaking to. Uh, he said something quite recently, I think within the last day, which was, you know, somewhere between those two positions. Yes, we will still have a security presence because we're not going to let anyone else have the guns. You know, the real question is who, who will have the guns in Gaza? Will it be Hamas? Will it be Israel? Will it be the Palestinian Authority brought back in, in some kind of way, even though it's, it's um, certainly President Abbas is a, a figure who is widely disparaged, maybe even despised? So it's a very complicated question. And Benjamin Netanyahu says whatever comes into his head on whatever channel But, but you, heard, you heard Rob saying how... Uh, it's Joe Biden who has to answer to domestic uh, public opinion as the war goes on. Netanyahu, in, in that regards, he's not going anywhere, is he? Well, we don't know that. Um, if you only look at the polls, he's definitely not popular and people don't think, uh, well, they haven't gotten over, I think, the shock of what happened here on October the 7th. And there are many, many people who say that his role in that was significant. And so we don't know what's going to happen to him. And he doesn't know what's going to happen to him is the truth either. So I think uh, these pronouncements and this certainty and this certainty that he's not going anywhere, I don't think he shares it. Well, as we've been saying, the U.S. president more and more open about his growing impatience with the lack of an endgame Joe Biden, uh, who spoke to reporters on Thursday. Mr. President, are you frustrated with Prime Minister Netanyahu that he has not listened more to some of the things you have asked him to do? It's taking a little longer than I hoped. Again, earlier I was asking Eric Randolph about the slow pivot by Emmanuel Macron. Is it a slow pivot for Joe Biden as well? I mean, I think we need to be a little bit fair to them. That, that is there a realistic end game? Is there a realistic day after? Does anybody have an answer to what should be done after this? I'm, I think you know we've, we lose sight of the fact that there is no good answer to any of this. That was the whole success from Hamas's point of view of their attack was that it forces Israel into an overreaction, uh, which is exactly the point of a terrorist attack. And Israel is now conducting a massive operation that many see as an overreaction. It's dragging itself into a conflict 
But there is no day after. I mean, it's the lesson we've learned many times. But Israel has no choice in this. And in, I, I find politicians, if they sound like they're grasping for at straws and not sure what to say, it's because what is there to say? Robert Parsons? You know, it's, uh, it's certainly the case, I think, that Israel probably hasn't given an awful lot of thought to what the day after is going to be. You know, bear in mind, October the 7th is only a month away. You know, that's not an awful lot of time, even in the best of circumstances, to start formulating your policy for what should be happening, you know, months or, or whatever down the road after an upheaval uh, of this magnitude. But certainly at the moment, one well, has we, to imagine. We had guests the other night saying October 7th, the world was shocked. But now the new shock of seeing, you know, there were three hospitals reportedly targeted this Friday, and that that shock has replaced the old shock. Yeah, there are shocks after shocks after shocks. It's happening all the time. But, you know, one would have thought that at this stage, particularly given the international pressure, that Israel would be beginning to think in concrete terms about what they want to put in place once they achieve mm. the uprooting that they're seeking of Hamas. The, you know, the, the problem is, you know, as you were just suggesting, is there are not many easy options out there, if any. You know, what do you do? You know, the, the Israelis are saying they don't want now. They're saying that they don't want to be the security force inside. They want to be outside. So what's going to be inside? What sort of governance is it going to be? Is it going to be the Palestinian Authority? I, I hardly think that the Palestinian Authority wants to be seen to be governing, you know, on, uh, you know, backed by Israeli guns. It's not the sort of impression that the, the Palestinian Authority wants to spread amongst the, its Palestinian electorate. So, you know, th there are no easy solutions. Fr Francesca Bori, uh, it's day 35 and we're desperately uh, seeking any kind of glimmer of hope. You talked about it being your 15th year uh, of working in the region. Is it at least the most we've talked about the day after? Well, um, the, the, the point is, you know, um, there's much talking about the end, you know, of the Oslo process, that's for sure, is, is that. Uh, I would say it's not only, you know, the, the two-state solution, uh, it's the two peoples. I mean, when we speak of Israelis and Palestinians, you know, uh, what we are talking about, you know, the Israelis, you know, uh, it's a divided society. We have seen it in the past months, you know, with all the protests. And what about the Palestinians, you know? Uh, we are, as journalists, you know, we are, uh, our interviews are, I don't know, Mahmoud Abbas, Alan Fayyad, Mohammed Dalan, Mustafa Barghouti, Marwan Barghouti. These are the same names, you know, of the second intifada, the first intifada. Some of them have been, you know, with Arafat in the mm. PLO. Um, the median age is 21.3 years, you know, who are really the Palestinians, who they really want, you know, because what I see from here, you know, from, from across the West Bank, uh, all Palestinians are with Hamas. Doesn't mean with Hamas, you know, in itself, you know, even most Fatah members are with Hamas. Hamas has resistance, as action, as initiative, you know. So now we have two red lines, you know, we have Israel and the international community, uh, the so-called international community that says, okay, everything in Gaza, but without Hamas, no? And we have Palestinians, all Palestinians, um, who say we want Hamas included, you know, in our society. Without Hamas, you go nowhere. And this comes even from the opponents of Hamas. 
um, that's that's the point, you know. You yeah, that, that was certainly what the red lines. that was certainly what the uh, Palestinian prime minister said to France 24 that you're not going to eliminate. Hamas, and certainly not the idea of Hamas. Uh, most wanted by Israel is Yahya Sinwar, the head of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Spent 22 years in an Israeli prison before his 2011 release uh, as part of the exchange for captured soldier Gilad Shalit. In 2018, Francesca Bori, you interviewed Yahya Sinwar. He said, I'm tired of war at the time. Uh, is it the same man today? Mm. Yes, he's the same man. He was not lying, you know. Uh, this is what uh, all Israel is talking about these days. Uh, was he lying? Was he, you know, misleading us through 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 these journalists? Uh, well, I've been working for months in, in Gaza. That interview was not, you know, 30 minutes with Yahya Sinwar. It was much more than that. And after, after that interview, you know, uh, there were negotiations. This is not a secret between Netanyahu and Hamas. You know, there was this channel for months and months. This channel uh, took nowhere, basically, you know. And then Palestinians were forgotten. And then, you know, the normalization between Israel and the Emirates, between Israel and other Arab countries, with Saudi Arabia, uh, the change in the region, the change, you know, with Iran. And the point is, yes, uh, Siwar is the same. Uh, Gaza, you know, is the, was the same too until October 7, you know? So uh, that's the point, you know? Of course, the, di uh, the, the, difference is, the difference is, though, is we, we saw on October 7th was the method, uh, using those body cams to record themselves as they carried out the killings and abductions. Uh, again, uh, that's why I ask about the evolution of Hamas. Uh, no, it's not, you know. It's, it's, still, it's still Hamas. Hamas has always had, you know, uh, several wings, you know, there's not only Sinwar. Um, Hamas is, is a complex organization. Uh, there is, uh, you know, the, the, the number one is Ismail Haniyeh, the head of the political bureau. And for example, Ismail Haniyeh still today is for the two-state solution. Uh, Ismail Haniyeh basically recognizes Israel, you know, uh, still today. Uh, Sinwar, we don't know yet now, no, now. Uh, Khaled Meshal, no, it's the opposite. Khaled Meshal is the star of Hamas. He's probably the most famous uh, leader in, in, in the Middle East and is one of the mediators now for the hostages, you know. So Hamas is many things together. And uh, the point is, you know, everybody says, uh, why now Sinwar broke, you know, that long ceasefire? Actually, the ceasefire was broken in 2021 when there was the fourth mm. war in Gaza. This is the fifth the point is the world barely noticed, and that's how we arrived to October 7, you know, because Gaza was totally forgotten. In 2021, when, you know, uh, again, uh, Hamas started launching rockets, you know, in Tel Aviv, Israelis asked me, why, you know, why Sinwar changed his mind, you know? Nothing changed in Gaza. Well, that's the answer, you know, nothing changed in Gaza. Uh, Gaza has been under siege. Okay, now we, we, we call it blockade, but it's been under siege. Let's use the light, right words, you know, uh, since basically 2005, progressively, you know, since the disengagement uh, decided by Ariel mm. Sharon. Now, we, do you remember when Israel was counting the calories, you know, the minimum amount of calories per capita, per capita uh, 2,279 for survival? This has been Gaza. The, the UN said that Gaza 
was going to be unfit to human life within, you know, uh, by 2020. And we are in 2023. So basically, you know, Palestinians tried everything, you know, at some point you tried everything and violence becomes, you know, uh, basically the only solution, the wrong solution. Of course, you know, nobody, we all know, I mean, uh, as a a former, you know, human rights specialist, uh, I think that legally October 7th, a Hamas attack is an act of genocide, honestly, uh, because, you know, uh, Jews were targeted bef- because they are Jewish. So, I mean, it's not something... Uh, the point is, uh, for how long Gaza could, you know, go on like this? For how long? At some point, you get that reaction. Iris Makler, let me ask you, on uh, where you are in, in Jerusalem, you know, people can remember when uh, Yasser Arafat had a target on his head, and then he was the one who signed uh, the, the uh, accords with um, uh, Yitzhak Rabin. And, um, and so I, I, I ask you, uh, will it be the same? Yaya Sinwar, who today has a target on his head, will he one day be sitting down at a negotiating table? Very hard for me to imagine that right now. Um, I'm trying to be to be open to that interpretation. I think the shock of October the 7th was so huge here, both because of the intelligence failure and the military failure, but also because of the horrors, you know, and they were filmed and they're still coming out. Somebody just did an interview with a woman um, who was giving more details about rapes and so forth that she'd witnessed. So this drip, drip, drip of horrific detail makes it very hard for Israelis to see past that. I don't mean that they won't one day be able to, perhaps, but right now there's still uh, so much shock. The fact that the hostages um, haven't been released, well, five have four released and one rescued, that also sits with people here imagining what their lives are like under the ground uh, in one of those tunnels in Gaza. Uh, So all of that is a very big emotional toll um, and I think what you were saying, um, what Eric was saying about the purpose of terrorism, you know, when you carry out such an extreme act, you provoke an extreme reaction and everybody becomes more extreme. That's true on both sides. So you, I hear people who are leftists or centrist, centrist Israelis now saying, that's it. You know, we can't, ha- we can't live next door to an organisation that is um, has so many rockets fires on us and has the ability to do this. Israel has to get rid of the military infrastructure of Hamas. That wasn't something I would have thought I would have heard before October the 7th. So I think uh, both sides have to step, have, have to have the time to step back from the extremes that they have been suffering. Um, the huge number of dead in these bombings uh, in Gaza the huge number of dead in that assault on October the 7th. And then, you know, once they've uh, recovered, see see whether they could speak to one another again. Yeah, for the past month, uh, we've also on this show been taking stock of just how much the eruption in the Middle East has stoked the ugliest sort of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Thursday evening, there were commemorations mm-hmm. throughout Europe for the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, when the Nazis carried out pogroms against Jews in riots defined as a seminal moment of the Holocaust. For Jewish communities throughout the world, it's been a trying one month, like in Montreal, where this week a synagogue and community center were targeted by firebombs and bullet holes found at two Jewish schools. Here in France, the number of recorded anti-Semitic acts has soared. 
prompting the speakers of the Senate and the National Assembly to jointly call for a march next Sunday uh, for Republican values and against anti-Semitism. Uh, this call, though, Eric Randolph, it hasn't sparked the kind of unanimity we saw in this country in 1990 when Jewish uh, tombstones were desecrated in the south of France. 200,000 people turned out then. Now there's an almighty argument going on. Why? Because the far right says it's going to the march. The far left says if the far right's going, we're not. Yeah, it's a fascinating change that's happened over the last few decades that the far right um, has shifted from focusing its uh, vitriol on Jews to focusing its vitriol on Muslims. So there's a certain sort of diversity, I guess, at play in that. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that makes it very difficult for the other parties. Um, they're aware, I, I suppose, that the far right are using this uh, as a vote-winning uh, game it plays into their uh, long-running ideas about uh, um, Muslims uh, living in France, um, and other parties don't want to be involved or to be seen walking alongside them. It makes it very difficult for everybody. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to to because they're not marching necessarily for the same reasons. Uh, the 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 expressly these are four Republican values. The uh, the accusation is that the far right is marching. Instead, for a clash of civilizations. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, the whole problem with these issues is that very quickly, well, for a start, the big difference between with, with 1990 is that we're not, uh, is that now we're also experiencing an incredibly uh, heart wrenching and difficult uh, thing that we're all witnessing on the news every day. Uh, and that makes everything that's happened, it colors everything with a level of emotion. It makes, it makes it very difficult to. To, to, to focus just on what's happening here in France. Uh, I think the, the, the big problem is that everybody is aware that this quickly becomes exploited by different political parties. Uh, everybody is grandstanding. Everybody wants to have an opinion. Everybody wants to have an idea about what happens next. Ultimately, this is a very real problem for, for the Jews and Muslims that are living in France. Uh, France has huge communities of both. Uh, but it's clear that as soon as it gets sucked in to the already toxic politics that we have in the West, uh, the divisions that already exist, and it just heightens them with that emotion that ultimately is, is, is not necessarily relevant to the domestic politics in France. The far left's uh, firebrand leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who refuses to call Hamas a terror group, has blasted uh, next uh, Sunday's march. He put out a tweet a few days back uh, denouncing what he calls a meeting of the friends of the unconditional support for the massacre. The massacre of Palestinians in Gaza is, is what he means. By the way, Robert Parsons, the head of the French Communist Party, has distanced himself from that. He says he, 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 he doesn't agree, the socialists don't agree, the left is completely split on this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the way the left has been going for quite some time in France. Mélenchon has really pushed uh, the party way, 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 way beyond what would have been tr acceptable a few years ago. Um, and it's, uh, I, it's pushing the, uh, the left into a, into a cul-de-sac, I think, ultimately. You know, the, how it's going to get out of this one down the road, I don't know. But, uh, you know, intellectually, uh, for the development of, a, of a, a socialist party, I think it's just taking them nowhere. Uh, in your native Italy, Francesca Bori, uh, the support uh, has been unconditional for Israel. 
on the part of a, what it is a coalition government between conservatives and the far right. How do you interpret that? Well, our prime minister, you know, uh, the party basically comes uh, uh, from the fascist party. So she had to, she had to show, you know, and uh, I mean, uh, you know, the history of Italy uh, is definitely not a friendly country for Jews. And there is this dangerous uh, mix uh, quite often, I would say, between, you know, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So sometimes, you know, you have this, um, um, you have this, uh, well, left and right, uh, far left and far right, they, you know, uh, uh, is not against the occupation, and you see that basically it's against the Jews, and uh, uh, it's not an easy moment, I would say, for uh, uh, for the Jews. Of course, you know, what Israel uh, is doing in Gaza is not definitely helping, you know, to the Jews to be safer, n neither in Israel nor, you know, anywhere in the world. Uh, but I think, you know, that in, in, in Europe, um, we, we, we don't fully understand uh, the, 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 the trauma, actually, of, of, of the Shoah. We try, we, I mean, especially in these days, we are a little bit downplaying it. There is this idea. I mean, um, October 7 was really a, a massive trauma for Israelis. Um, I think that if you are not here, I mean, uh, you don't fully understand it. And um, usually, you know, in Europe we say, oh, you know, but Israel is one of the most powerful states in the world. Uh, this is not really true, you know, this is not really true, not even militarily. And uh, we have to understand, you know, the, the, the trauma of Israel on October 7, uh, because this will be one of the main obstacles, you know, uh, I don't want to say to peace, because it's a word that probably, you know, is too much for now to, to, to speak about peace, but mm -hmm. a major obstacle is to step forwards, you know. And the point is that, yes, Europe doesn't understand, you know, uh, doesn't understand this fear now of Israelis, you know, to be under attack just because they are Jewish. And it's not completely, you know, uh, unfounded, this fear at all. Well, the, the acts of anti-Semitism here in France are, are, are real. There have been more than a thousand recorded in the, in the past uh, month, which is a huge surge compared to uh, what was happening before. But you know, Iris Machler, we saw it before. We, we had all kinds of conspiracy fl theories floating about when you had the anti-vaxxer demonstrations. You had uh, some pretty toxic things uh, that were posted on the sidelines of the Yellow Vests movement, the fringe elements there, of course. But still, uh, the, 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 there is this climate. This didn't happen in a vacuum. Yes, and it didn't happen in a social media vacuum either. Um, I was interested in Francesca talking about the, the radical left and the radical right, because I think this is where they meet. You know, they're a circle and they meet each other uh, in all these concerns. You know, they are um, anti-vaxxers. They are uh, anti-Ukrainian and in favour of Russia. They are, um, by and large, uh, anti-Semitic. I'll put it like that. It's certainly anti-Israel, but also anti-Semitic and pro-Palestinian. Like, they, they meet in a strange kind of um, a strange kind of point on the circle, so that they, they can be demonstrating about any of their concerns because they're pushed 
hysterically on social media. Um, it's not so long ago that everything that was coming into my social media feed was QAnon related. Now it's a bit less QAnon, but but nevertheless, the the concerns. If you just click on one, you can go down the rabbit hole of all of them. Actually. In the UK, home to pro-Palestinian marches every Saturday since the war began, there's, uh, a, for many, a calendar clash coming up this Saturday's November 11th, Remembrance Day for the soldiers who fought in World War I. For Richie Sunak's hard-right home secretary, the objection is not to what's happening this particular Saturday, but every Saturday since October the 7th. I have made my views clear. These are hate marches and the police must take a zero tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. Now that's seen as a dig at her own police force and that's triggered calls for Suella Braverman's resignation. Uh, Robert Parsons... Not for the first time. Not for the first time, but uh, again, it's this question of is she uh, defending against anti-Semitism or stoking this clash of civilizations? Well, I mean, a lot of people would say she's stoking the clash of civilizations, that she's playing her own trumpet, essentially, here. You know, the, it's true that this is a very sensitive date in the British calendar. You know, Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday are big, big dates, you know, set aside. And the, the, the fact that these demonstrations are going to be taking place at that time does cause a certain amount of concern. Nevertheless, you know, the, the, the police in the UK have said that the, there's no real reason for concern. They feel they've got the situation under control. Uh, they're, you know, they're not worried that, that, there is, that there's cause for any extra measures or, or for banning it. That's irritated Suella Braveman no end, and I think has fueled some of her comments. But there is this danger at the moment in, in, this, in this atmosphere that politicians are just fueling the flames of... Uh, the situation, making things considerably worse than they need be. All right, we've been looking for glimmers of hope this week, and perhaps we found one in Iran. Uh, while the country champions the Palestinian cause uh, and uh, presents itself as defending freedom, it seems publicity has forced it to grudgingly bend to the demands of this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner. The family of Nargis Mohammadi saying she's ended a hunger strike after she received medical treatment without wearing the obligatory um, headscarf. Uh, Eric Randolph, we, uh, we buried last year's uh, protest movement saying it had died down. Your thoughts on, on this one person getting the regime to bend a little bit. She's not out of jail by any means. A little bit, yeah. Nargis Mohammadi is, is a, true, a true hero. So if you want to take a glimmer of hope from anything, it's just in the fact that there yeah. exists people in the world with that much courage and that much strength. Uh, this is a woman who's been uh, imprisoned multiple times, uh, faced a total of hundreds of years in jail. Uh, she hasn't seen her own children in, I think, eight years. She's been sentenced to hundreds of lashes at one point. Uh, she has never bent, even when her family and children left the country, she stayed behind to fight for women's rights. Um, to be clear, what, what, what's happened with her ending a hunger strike was that they allowed her to have medical treatment, which she urgently needs. And she refused to have that medical treatment if she was forced to wear the hijab, the headscarf, which is uh, forced for all women in Iran, and which she has refused to wear ever since the protests last year. Uh, and they allowed her to have her medical treatment under extreme uh, security measures. She was escorted with an armed guard right through to the, the hospital uh, and back again. Um, 
But they did at least bend. I mean, she is the Nobel Prize winner, so I think even Iran had to had to accept that that was bad publicity even by their standards. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it makes a huge difference to her particular case or the cause uh, for women uh, in Iran, um, sadly. But the fact that she is still there uh, as a figurehead for that is something that we should all be extremely um, uh, recognising of. And among the other stories we're watching for you this week, Spain, a coalition deal between the outgoing socialists and the Catalan separatists, uh, uh, the separatists convicted of using state funds to stage a banned 2017 independence referendum. Well, sparked fury among critics of Pedro Sanchez. These are images outside Socialist Party headquarters Thursday evening. He's looking to weather that storm and keep his own troops in line as he moves to secure a razor-thin majority in the next parliament. He secured deals with two other uh, regional parties. Uh, that puts him over the top. He should be able to get his uh, coalition, the opposition conservatives, they're fuming. We're talking about giving in to blackmail that will turn the Supreme Court into an oppressor and will strike at the foundations of justice, weaken our state of autonomy and put an end to the equality of Spaniards enshrined in the Constitution. You know, earlier, Robert Parsons, we were talking about when do you make deals? And uh, <laughs> in this case, it's coming... When you want to get into power. <laughs> when you want to get into power is the, is the answer in this case. But it seems to have come way too soon for, too, for, for a lot of people in Spain. Yeah, I mean, that's for the People's Party on the right, because they were, they were really the favourites to win the, the recent election, and they were badly shocked when, when, they, when they didn't get the numbers they wanted. It's very frustrating for them. But, but it's also at the same time, it's a reminder that Spain is a multi-ethnic mm. society. We, were, we saw a report at the beginning of the program about, uh, apart from Catalonia, the Basques, uh, and this movement in the Canary Islands as well. You know, you can, it's, it's impossible for Spain, as it has done in the past, to, to ride roughshod over the aspirations uh, of its minority peoples. I think, you know, Spain down the line is just going to have to get used to that and find some sort of accommodation which allows greater self-determination, not necessarily independence, uh, for its component parts. All right, because we've, we've had uh, uh, the uh, head of uh, the, the Madrid region, uh, Isabel Diaz Ayuso, uh, Iris Mockler, saying that uh, this deal brings in dictatorship through the back door. You know, I was, I've been thinking about it um, in relation to the question that you asked me about what, what, could, what deal could be done here and that Francesca was talking about too. It's, there is a point when you have to make a deal because you want to go forward. And you can say all that dictatorship by the back door, recognising terror when it's, you know, giving in to terror, rewarding terror, all those kind of lines. But sometimes you just want to go forward and you just have to do it. And I say good, I say yeah, good yes. on Pedro Sanchez. Yeah. Uh, uh, Francesca Bori? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's worth remembering as well that, that, that he's acti actually act acting from a position of strength. So he, he can afford to do this deal because the Catalan movement has effectively collapsed from where it was in 2017. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the point when they had the referendum, it really looked like 
independence was a foregone conclusion that they would eventually get there and then the air has just gone out of that balloon since then and you know he can afford to do this deal he can be the good guy that brings them back in and it, there is no realistic prospect of that of that he, here in france we had the breakup of then president nicolas sarkozy's marriage play out in public more recently Canada's prime minister announcing he and his wife of 18 years were parting ways. That's life, right? Same goes for Georgia Maloney, who last month announced over Instagram that she and the father of her daughter uh, were separating. The Italian prime minister did it over Instagram. Andrea Giambruno is a TV journalist with the Mediaset network of the late Silvio Berlusconi. Italy has since been awash with salacious tales, not just in gossip magazines, but uh, on the evening news at times. This week, though, the New York Times called out Maloney for keeping quiet. She hasn't spoken about it since. Uh, keeping quiet over his sexist and predatory behavior, allegedly in the workplace. And uh, Francesca Bori, we uh, had this argument in this country when the Dominique Strauss-Kahn affair uh, uh, broke. Uh, is the New York Times right? Or, or does George Maloney have to speak about this? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, um, 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 I'm a specialist of Islamists and jihadists because when you are a young woman, you know, in Italy, it's very easy to deal, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with the Taliban. I'm based in Kabul, you know, and it's, uh, I would say that, you know, it's really... Uh, so I have to say something good, you know, about Giorgia Meloni. And, uh, Did uh, she, that, because the, the, the headline of the article was that she missed a Me Too moment. Yeah, yes, I, I, I read it, of course, you know. Uh, the point is, she's a little bit older than me. We were in the student movements in the same years. Uh, of course, you know, not exactly in the same group. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no, you know... Um, there is one thing that probably if you're not Italian, you can't really see. Um, the, Italy is a country where basically, um, well, it's not France, it's not Norway, it's not Sweden. Uh, it's, mo it's more like Afghanistan. And the point is, uh, women accept everything, you know. So the idea that, you know, a woman basically says, okay, the relationship is over, uh, well, uh, is a lot, is a lot in that way, you know, it's uh, in, in, in half a second, it's, it's over. Um, this is a, Italy is a country where basically uh, you keep relationships going for years and years and years until you get killed, uh, you know, by your partner. Mm. It happens, uh, the average is one every three days. So it's, it's more like Mexico. And now uh, the point is, uh, is the idea of family, you know, um, uh, now that there is this far-right government, you know, um, there are so many laws, I mean, not just debate, about the family, you know, uh, and the, 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 the right has this, you know, idea, idea of the family, uh, you know, uh, a father and mother and marriage, you know, and then you have something different in life. And I think, you know, the Giorgia Meloni uh, got a lesson from from life and uh, but the main point again is the example that she gave um, to Italian women and I have to admit you know um, it was a step forward I mean it, 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 you the fact that she announces Berlusconi, the right? breakup 
No, it's not, you know, the announcement of the breakup. It's the idea of the breakup. I mean, Italy is the country of Berlusconi, you know. Uh, um, I, I grew up, you know, in the years of Berlusconi in power. And Berlusconi in power, I mean, is, is TV power, you know. Um, I mean, if, if, you are, if you are a woman in Italy, if you are a young woman, you are an object. Let's say the truth. You are an object, you know. And uh, probably for you, you know, especially in France, I guess that, I don't know, uh, sexual harassment is something, is, is an exception. Uh, in Italy, is a normality. Uh, well, you we, want to we, ask me how many times it happened to me on the, I mean, I mean ask an Italian woman, you know. Uh, so the idea that you have, you know, a partner or a husband or a father or a brother, whatever, you know, that does something, you know, that does something, you know, that basically doesn't respect you and you say, okay, full stop, it's over. Um, again, I think it's the first, and I hope the last time in my life that I agree with Giorgia Meloni. Uh, <laughs> but this is what, you know, really, um, really is, you know, um, that's why that decision matters. Then, you know, Instagram right. or whatever, you know, th- I don't care. Right. And well, if it's maybe cold comfort for you, Francesca, they did a survey two years ago on, on Paris public transport. How many women had been... Uh, harassed uh, on the metro or this bus? The answer was 100%. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us from Ramallah. I want to thank Iris Mockler in Jerusalem, Eric Randolph, Robert Parsons. Thank you for being with us here in The World This Week.